Hey there, Dave Robinson here, and you are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. Hey, have you ever heard of the Envirome Institute at the University of Louisville? We've discussed them on this show before. Just check out our episode from August 5th, 2019. The Christina Lee Brown Envirome Institute was just established at UofL in 2018, not very long ago. And to quote their mission statement, quote, With the city of Louisville as our urban laboratory, we will explore, learn, and understand how our natural, social, and personal environments impact human health and chronic disease. In partnership with communities, stakeholders, and visiting scholars, Institute researchers will study how environmental differences create health disparities between communities. Our work will bring greater understanding to how natural, social, and personal environments impact individual well-being and disease risk, unquote. With that said, today's show is going to dig a little deeper as to what the Envirome Institute has been doing regarding COVID-19 here in Louisville. In spite of President Biden's statement that the pandemic is over, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is still in our community. Last week, ending on September 18, 2022, there were 1,246 cases of COVID-19 in Jefferson County, with eight deaths. And Louisvillians are still categorized as being in the medium risk range for contracting COVID, means we're in the yellow zone. The Envirome Institute has been monitoring the disease from the very beginning of the pandemic and is still doing so now. And that's what this show is about. Now, this episode is part of the Bench Talk Live series organized by the Kentucky Academy of Science and features Dr. Rachel Keith, an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Environmental Health at the University of Louisville. She's also the Director of Human Subject Services with the Envirome Institute. We'll start with Rob Weber introducing Dr. Keith. Thank you everybody for joining us for the May 9th, 2022 Bench Talk Live. I'm Rob Weber, the Director of Communications and Policy for the Kentucky Academy of Science. And this marks the, the first time that I've opened a Bench Talk Live. So thank you to my boss, Amanda Fuller, for giving me this opportunity. Appreciate it, Amanda. The Kentucky Academy of Science is a statewide organization of professional scientists and people who support and value science. Our mission is to foster scientific discovery and understanding across Kentucky. We do this in a number of ways. We have publications, including the Journal for the Academy of Science. We have uh, annual meetings, which is the largest professional gathering of scientists in Kentucky. Uh, We have outreach, we award research grants, uh, we create connections among scientists across disciplines and across Kentucky's geographic boundaries. And of course, we host things like this, tonight's Bench Talk Live. So now on to tonight's speakers who we're so fortunate to have with us. I'll start with Dr. Rachel Keith. I I talked with her while the General Assembly was still in session this year about some of the policy issues that lawmakers were looking at. And I was drawn into her story about how she spent uh, much of her career in cardiology, but in more recent times has been drawn into serving in the front lines of the pandemic. And she has all sorts of interesting experiences and insights about this that makes for a compelling talk. So I appreciate 
that she was willing to come here tonight to share her background with you. She is an associate professor of medicine with the Division of Environmental Health, and she is the director of human subject services with the Enviram Institute at the University of Louisville. Her research program combines her skill sets in basic sciences, nursing, community participatory research, and clinical studies. So thank you for the kind introduction and inviting us here. So um, what I really want to talk about is how did we get here? You know, what have we learned? What have we, have we learned from the pandemic that we will use going forward? Shape science and policy and um, health in general. So I work from the Enviroom Institute. I had someone read my shirt today and say, what is that? I've never heard of that. So what we do is we look at how the environment in general affects health, right? So within our group, we study parts of the natural, social, and personal environment. Um, Rob mentioned I did preventive cardiology. I looked at things like air pollution and tobacco. I'm actually trained in regulatory science, which is very different than any other sort of science. Because you're specifically trying to generate unbiased research to address policy. So this isn't the mechanistic type of research that a lot of people think about, but a lot of time policymakers have a question and they say, we need answers to this question. We want to address it with science. We need you to figure out the science. But sometimes um, the questions are driven by us and sometimes they're not. But what I will tell you is, you know, we think the environment is a complex kind of multi-layered thing that you have to understand. So think back two years, three years now, sitting at home like everyone else hearing about COVID-19 and thinking that, hey, I'm going to be able to work on my papers and write grants and get manuscripts published. And this is great because when do scientists get this time? And, you know, I think everyone thought then it might be a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, what's going to happen? And um, everything shut down. And I got a call that Monday morning at eight from administration at UofL and said, hey, we need you to come in. Like there's this COVID thing. We, we, we need you. We need help. Um, we now know that there's over a million deaths in the U.S. alone. There's over six million deaths worldwide. This is kind of a heat map of the um, confirmed deaths worldwide. This needs to be taken with a grain of salt, though. There's a lot of countries that either don't test or don't report or have very different ways of, of attributing death to disease such as COVID-19. So what I will tell you is I think this will continue to change over the next decade when people go back and do other types of research to understand. You know, I, I really don't believe that most of, of Africa um, has had virtually no deaths from covid I have family in South Africa, and if you talk to them, it is quite the opposite. So, you know, I, I think these are all things about COVID that we did not know what was going to happen. And part of what I want to touch on is that, you know, when a pandemic breaks out, everyone kind of gets called in from different avenues and we do the best we can. But I think all this information will continue to change as we um, move forward. So why did they call me? Why did they call the Enviroom? Because, you know, I'm not just one person. Why did they call the other people we collaborated with? At the Enviroom, there's a great group of individuals within the hospital systems and the medical systems and 
um, the school of medicine that is really focused on treating patients, right? People get sick, you figure out new drugs for them, you figure out new treatments, you figure out how to fix them. We've never really taken that approach. We've always had a preventive approach, which is a very different approach from a lot of other medical type researchers that do clinical studies. It is not always well-funded to do prevention. Community doesn't always look at, hey, I didn't get a heart attack till I was 90. You know, you gave me 30 more good years of, of living. So it's not a very sexy type of science. It's a very underappreciated and underfunded type of, uh, of science. But what we have done, because we have always focused on prevention, is we have clinicians like myself and other people, um, other translational researchers who really focus on how do we keep people healthy, not how do we figure out how to help them. So once COVID hit, we wanted to leave the medical providers to helping those. You know, there's so little known about how to treat people. Let's leave the people who are good at what they do, which is to take care of the hospitals and the people that are sick. And we can take resources and we can take our knowledge that a lot of people don't necessarily have similar backgrounds because you need these different pieces. You need people who know about clinical stuff. You need people who can develop the basic laboratory science to do the testing, right? Because we didn't want to burden hospital systems to do the testing for COVID either. And, you know, we have the resources to do all these sort of things. And we can quickly looking through literature and making decisions in a very unbiased way to try and morph with everything. So that's kind of how we got to being um, pulled into COVID-19. Our group was, and then we worked very closely with the Center for Predictive Medicine to do all the actual testing of COVID-19. So we very quickly were able to prop up high throughput PCR to look at active infection. And then we also were very quickly able to prop up antibody testing, and that's IgA, IgM, IgG. So we could look at different, um, we could look at X and N, which are different parts of COVID. So we could look at a lot more than you would typically get from a lab, but without drawing resources away from um, the treatment. So what I will tell you is what was our approach then? So there's some science out there talking about um, South Korea. And there are other um, Asian countries. Japan was actually very big on this. They would test, isolate, find them, quarantine them, and then retest them, isolate, find them, quarantine them. They had very stringent, uh, you know, what they would call boxing in the virus. And this was early on. And they were able to control their numbers. Japan did similar things. And then if you were sick, there were very good support systems to take care of you and your family and be able to make sure you have food and things like that. There was also this little town in Italy. And I remember sitting in clinic and talking to one of the attendings about it, where they found the first person who had COVID because they were just testing everyone. It was a very small city and they were testing everyone. They found them. And again, they isolated them for two weeks, tested everyone they had been in contact with, figured out who was sick, isolated them for two weeks, tested everyone else. And within like a month, They'd gotten rid of COVID and they shut down their borders and they said, we're done. Like, we'll stay open to us. But they were able to essentially eradicate COVID. So our idea was let's test everybody. Let's figure out who has this in an attempt to, again, do this kind of boxing in. If people know they have it and they can isolate, and then we can turn that information over to others who can contact grace and quarantine, can we keep our numbers low? 
And again, we wanted to let those who are best at treating the, the individuals treat the individuals while we did this. So we developed a multidisciplinary approach. We, again, I kind of mentioned, you know, we worked with basic laboratories so that they could stand up the testing we need and not pull resources from clinical sources for those who are sick or needed it. We also designed methods and looked at testing methods to figure out how to do random sampling because we knew that we may be introducing bias. How do we select our cohorts? Who do we work with um, that gives us the most information? How do we reach the community? How do we talk to them? Because I think a lot of people forget that there's, um, I think, unfortunately, a large portion of scientists who do not focus on communicating with the lay public and people outside of their profession. So, um, you know, me talking to an engineer is a very different language. And so if I only use the scientific terms and try and make sure everyone knows as much as I can, that engineer, who's also very highly educated, will have no idea what I'm saying, let alone my mom, who's not a scientist. So we really have things in place, people like Lauren and other groups who do a lot of community outreach and look at the language. We have a lot of established ties in the communities with diverse partners to, to bring in stakeholders who might be minoritized or not have the opportunities um, to access healthcare the same. And then, you know, we have the ability to ask people questions to figure out about, you know, what do you think about vaccination? What do you think about testing? Why aren't you testing? Why are you testing? And do all these, these complex modeling um, approaches. So I'm going to do a sidebar here. You know, everyone involved in the project, the university, the city, the state that we were giving this back, we're very excited about this because it was going to be truly a randomized study of testing. But at the same time, um, we had a lot of people very angry at us. We had a lot of people um, thinking that we were, you know, taking away from the sick, taking away from other populations. We were trying to shut down the city, which actually we were trying to not shut down the city, but figure out how to isolate people so that the city could stay as open as possible and, you know, keep the infections down. We were trying to potentially save populations from overrunning hospitals, which would help those treating it. But instead, at times, we were called murderers and other lovely terminology um, for doing work that we were asked to do by the CDC, the city and the state. Um, Just normal scientists (laughs) kind of trying to regroup and repurpose into something that could be helpful. Though many people thought it was a great thing, it was a very dichotomized uh, reaction that we got. So the project we had was for the community project. We had three arms. One was for um, hospital workers. It was the first one we did so that they would know if they had antibodies, they would know if they'd been sick and we could start to get an idea of who was getting sick. And at the time we found out the people in the ED, ICU and COVID floors had the highest rate. So over a third of them towards a half of them And this was very early on. This was in April, had already been infected with COVID. And a lot of them didn't know they had been. Um, Then we moved on to the community itself, the wider community, to start to get those numbers for individuals and and to give people an access to uh, the information they needed. And then we've moved on to a long haulers project. So really fast, you know, part of what we did was take some of the epidemiology we do and did a random sampling of Jefferson County to get the the best rates. 
you know, there's a lot of fighting about what's the best test. You know, who should test? Why should, why should you test? And we kind of just wanted to go back to science and not get involved in the politics of everything or the finances of everything and say, you know, you need a random sample. If you don't have a random sample, you're going to introduce bias. And we need to know the true numbers so that we know um, how many people are really sick, how many people may be protected by antibodies, um, who needs help. So we work with Westat, who does the NHANES project, if anyone's familiar with that, or other large national recruitment strategies, where we would broke the city up into eight sectors, and we sampled proportionally to what uh, the makeup of the race, gender, and age, and ethnicity of Louisville was. So that way, when we brought people in, what we could do is we could create more realistic models um, of how many people in the city would have been sick based on age, race, ethnicity, sex, those sort of things. Or we weren't only drawing in people who were sick. So we worked with a lot of community engagements. And I think this is something that scientists don't always do very well when we're um, tucked away in our benches and our other places. We work with Churchill Downs to get to the Hispanic Latino community. We had to bring in translators to work on site with us. We had to deal with cultural issues um, about testing or about when to test. Um, times and days based on work schedules. We had to have the translators. We worked with the neighborhood place. We worked with the Louisville Urban League. We worked with TARC. Um, there are a lot of businesses who wanted to shy away from this. We heard from some businesses that they said, you know, they wouldn't let their employees test because they didn't want to have to shut down. So they would rather people come in and get sick and then they would deal with it then. Um, but there are other businesses that were very interested in testing. So it is. it was a very dynamic thing. And I want to really thank Global Urban League, MSD, a lot of these um, community organizations, because a lot of this was done during the same time that we had some of the, um, the, the racial justice and equity marches going on and some of the um, shutdowns of the city um, during that time. And we were these, you can see where all our study sites were. Um, we were in areas and parts of town where the marching were going on. We popped up sites. There were gunshots. <laughs> um, we popped up sites and had all kinds of interesting things. We would have to put up generators. We would have to put up tents. Um, we had to find people who would work. Some people, you know, didn't feel like um, being basic. Coming from the sort of research that we were, they weren't really healthcare workers. So it was one of those questions, too. Can you mandate stuff? Can you not? We're not truly healthcare workers. We're not a hospital, but we need people with a healthcare background to do the testing and things. We also were able to work in a lot of efficiencies and provide those back to health systems or other diagnostic companies because we had academic partners in other areas who could let us know about systems like primary for testing and things like that. So I want to just um, highlight the fact that, you know, as community-based research, you have to go into the community and the things that they don't teach you in school about science or how to start generators, or how to build tents, or what sort of resources you're going to need in the field. This is the sort of data we were able to give back. So we could give positivity trends. We did about eight to 12 cycles of testing on people so we could show over time how positivity rates were changing, how antibody rates were changing. We could map out prevalence rates 
Um, we can map it out again based on these factors like race, ethnicity. So we were um, showing that in Louisville, Hispanics had about quite Hispanic Latino individuals had about twice the amount of COVID as the white population. Um, we found that you know minoritized communities were were struck very hard early on, and then when the city could divert resources for campaigns for testing and things like that, we were able, or they were able to bring down their, their numbers and their community of COVID. We saw that there are a lot more people infected than they thought they had been. So our rate really about double, if not more than what was reported by the city. And again, you know, we were able to find asymptomatic cases um, of individuals who maybe weren't able to test or um, didn't have access to tests. We looked at environmental factors. So if you went to work, you were more likely to get it. If you were doing things like masking, you were less likely to get it. But living with others or kids or things like that didn't really do anything. We were able to look at tobacco and COVID. So we saw that fewer people who use tobacco presented with COVID, but if you did present with COVID, you were actually typically a lot worse off. So there were these contradictions that we were able to use national data sets like the AHA get guidelines, to start to tease out more information and then feed that, that information back into the basic science pipeline to think about, is it ACE? Does nicotine interact you know, with ACE? And is it blocking or is it altering the antibodies in, in the nasal cavities in the mouth, which is where, is there more mucus there? So, you know, the infection can't get in or, you know, and to feed those questions back and people are now all working on the science behind those to help with the future pandemics. We also did a lot about vaccine hesitancy. So again, you know, we are a very diverse group. We found out that only 31.5% of minority um, participants even knew how to sign up for vaccinations early on. We looked at the sources that they were most interested in, um, anyone was most interested in receiving information about the vaccines from to help the city and the state figure out um, campaigns and, and programs to do. And we also talked about hesitancy and tried to find out why people were hesitant with vaccines to see if there was any sort of information we could provide back to those who were encouraging that as a form of prevention. We also have gotten to the post-acute COVID syndrome world, um, our PACs. You know, early on, people didn't really think long haulers was real. Um, providers themselves were somewhat um, not very thoughtful in, in how they treated patients presenting with this. Um, researchers didn't always believe it. But when you look at the history of viral diseases, um, you know, post-viral um, syndromes have been going on for a very long time. And a lot of people think Epstein-Barr is actually a post-viral syndrome and that um, a lot of uh, chronic fatigue is actually a post-viral syndrome. Um, and so there's a lot that we're starting to do and work with to look at the clinical side of it now and see what's going to happen moving forward. And we can look at vaccine rates. And, you know, and, and the severity of disease based on immunophenotyping and people to see if any of those are linked with these PAC syndromes. We can look at the vascular. So it's a lot of interesting research coming out there. But this is the part that I think is most interesting for me. So what does it mean for the future? What are the next steps for scientists? Because I am convinced this is decades of fallout still for science and society. So, you know, going back to our mission at the Enviro, we want to look at the personal environment. So, black males 
were hit really hard in, in this pandemic. And so, you know, what does that mean to individuals who um, lost loved ones? Who, you know, what does that mean to someone who 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 identifies as a black male versus someone who doesn't? How does your race and your your biologic sex and your predisposition to disease impact your experience and impact what comes out of this? You know, people weren't able to go to the gym or some people had a lot of time to work out. What is that going to mean for people? Will will some people just never go back to working out? Will that impact their their health? Um, I think we hear more and more about the economy and mental health. Um, This went on a lot longer than any of us anticipated in the beginning. So what are the fallouts going to do for that? There's a lot of people leaving the healthcare world. Um, So what does that do for those people who still need care for other things like heart attack or COPD? How is their health and and their quality of life going to be impacted? Um, And then vaccinations and kind of the politicization of science. That's my biggest thing. And I feel like that falls on social and personal. So it's kind of a good segue over to social too. Um, this pandemic was politicized in a way that I have never encountered before in any other sort of um, area that I, I work in. And, you know, the environment isn't always a fuzzy place to work in science. So the fact that this is so much worse to me, and I think this is some of the conversations I've had with people, is it's really made me think about as a scientist what do we do moving forward? Because I think most of the scientists I know are truly unbiased. We don't have an agenda other than learning and educating and and making all the information we can to make things better. So how do we unpoliticize science again? And how do we teach people to understand what we do as a profession and understand that you know, we don't find the answer the first time and things do change and morph. And, you know, that's one of the things that really made people mad in the pandemic. Like you just told me a week ago, I didn't have to wear a mask. Now I have to wear a mask. Now you say these masks are okay. And these ones aren't like, how do we talk to people about science and that we're always learning and evolving and flexibility. But other than that, think about food chain supplies and supply chain and how do we think about where our food comes from and how we get clothes and our social systems um, that were kind of shut down, schools and religious institutions? So all these sort of things, including with the natural environment, you know, pollution really affected people's likelihood of getting COVID and then the outcomes of COVID. People actually moved them to other places to work because it was easier to work remotely. A lot of people stopped driving to work. So is that going to impact climate change? If we don't have the supply chain moving things around as much for that, um, there was also times where people were dumping things in the field because they, you know, they couldn't move it. So, and then the masks, please tear your little ear loops off your masks. That's very nice for the ocean. If you do that, so animals don't get caught in it. Um, But these are all things that I think, you know, over the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to need a lot of science and a lot of education, a lot of thinking about um, how we talk to people about science, how we think about who the stakeholders in science are. Is it really just us doing it or is it really the community and the lay people? And, you know, how do we get information back to them faster? How do we communicate our, our unbiased nature in general? 
how do we also talk to them in a way that's not belittling, but also um, is very accessible for all to partake in science? You know, and so these are all things that I think the environment and other scientists need to keep in mind as we move forward. That was Dr. Rachel Keith of the University of Louisville Envirome Institute. Now, there's a second part to this segment, and it's about how the Envirome Institute is collaborating with others in monitoring the sewage system in Louisville for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Did you know that there was more COVID-19 viral particles in Louisville wastewater this month, September of 2022, than there was in March? We'll try to play that lecture for you later. In the meantime, you've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Thanks, and see you next week.